join me, if you would, in Romans chapter 7. Let's all stand together as we read that passage. I do hope sincerely that at least some have thought to bring the service before the Lord beforehand to ask for His help and His blessing and His power. I'm firmly convinced for this speaker to be the most used of God that's absolutely necessary. I don't say that as a matter of guilt, but I do say it as a matter of asking. This morning, I hope some of you will be in prayer during the service. This is honestly a difficult matter to thread the needle through. There's error on both sides of what we're talking about this morning. But I do think it's a type of bondage that many of the Lord's people are in. To see clearly really spells out the way of life rather than death. So I pray the Lord will help us. Romans chapter 7 beginning in verse 1. Know ye not, brethren, for I speak to them that know the law, how that the law hath dominion over a man as long as he liveth. For the woman which hath an husband is bound by the law to her husband so long as he liveth. But if the husband be dead, she is loosed from the law of her husband. So then if while her husband liveth, she be married to another man, she be called an adulteress. But if her husband be dead, she is free from that law. So that she is no adulteress, though she be married to another man. Wherefore, my brethren, ye also are become dead to the law by the body of Christ. That ye should be married to another, even to him who is raised from the dead. That we should bring forth fruit unto God. For when we were in the flesh, the motions of sin which were by the law did work in our members to bring forth fruit unto death. But now we are delivered from the law that being dead wherein we were held, that we should serve in newness of spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. Father, you know the spiritual dangers that are set in array against us both within and without. Our constant downward tendency to hold wrong positions to fight zealously for things that really aren't even true, to misunderstand the implications of grace and how to grow and how to live the Christian life. Father, I plead with you this morning, Lord, not on the basis of our sincerity, but on the basis of the blood of Jesus Christ, thy blessed Son, who has purchased this church with his own blood, who delights to see this church purified and to grow in doctrine and depth, to learn to walk in the Spirit. Father, we pray that you'd open the eyes of our understanding. We pray you teach us more truth on this road of sanctification, which every Christian must walk all the days of this flesh. Help us, Lord, as we go through these verses to have understanding. Father, I pray that you'd give me utterance. You'd give me spiritual logic. You'd give me the ability to speak to souls. 
Thank you, Lord, that you love us. That you intimately care about what happens here this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, I really think that the most helpful way to begin, or to at least introduce the passage that we have just read, is to point out and highlight the different in emphasis, difference in emphasis between Romans chapter 6 and Romans chapter 7. I think many people mistakenly get the idea that Paul is simply regurgitating and rehashing and rephrasing himself again in Romans 7, and really... Uh, in danger of becoming redundant. So I want to begin by pointing out that the battle of Romans 6 and the battle of Romans 7 are related, but they're certainly not the same thing. In chapter 6, you'll remember those three key verbs, I hope, know, reckon, and yield. But if you had to pick a key word from that chapter, it would without doubt be the word sin. Once again, if you're someone who likes to write in your margins, it may help you down the road next to the heading on Romans 6. The word sin appears in that chapter 17 different times. And of course, the main concern in Romans 6 is how can I get victory over my sin nature? The problem is one of how not to do evil. It deals with a common experience which any Christian will agree to, that our resident sinful nature really functions sort of like a lead balloon and drags us to a downward tendency and an inclination to do that which is evil and into failure. And of course, victory, as we went through that chapter, does not come through looking inward. It doesn't come through examining my sincerity. It doesn't come through greater productions and theatrics. It comes through looking outside of myself taking hold of what God has declared concerning me if I am a believer in Christ, namely, the fact that when Christ died those 2,000 years ago, I was buried and died with Him. The power over my sin nature is effectively broken whether I feel it or not. And so, sanctification, the battle against my flesh, is waged by faith, and not merely by human effort. And so as we respond to what God has said by faith rather than by flesh, as we are enabled to yield unto God, that is God's way of finding victory over our nature within, which is constantly seducing us to do evil. Now as I thought about that this week, I think there's a couple of other things that need to be said by way of clarification. This may seem self-evident, but I think it's important to point out. The path to victory outlined in Romans 6 is only effective for those who actually want victory over sin. Now let me explain what I mean by that. There's many other passages you can find in the Word of God which have something to say regarding our sin nature, whether by direct statement or by principle. Some of these you know. You may not know the reference, but you know the, you know the statement. Mortify your members which are upon the earth. Put them to death. Have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them. Later on in Romans, make not provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof. Or how about Proverbs? The prudent man foreseeth the evil and hideth himself, 
but the simple pass on and are punished. In other words, these passages show our duty to remove as much as possible the things that we know are sources of temptation. Here's what I'm saying. I've found over the years that the passages I've just mentioned form a sort of litmus test to find out if somebody really wants victory over sin or if they're just giving lip service to it. We have to realize the deceitfulness of this flesh within. If you refuse to obey God's counsel and yet somehow can hang your head and blame your failure on God Himself, your flesh will do it. I don't know how many conversations I've had with people over the years. They seem to be in distress. They seem to be sincere. They want victory in some area of the Christian life. But you give them practical counsel like I've just given from other passages. And they refuse to do it. In other words, what they're demonstrating is they're talking about wanting victory. But they don't really want it. Don't talk about wanting victory over sin when you refuse to separate yourself from perverse influences that you know you're putting yourself in front of. If you constantly fill your head full of the lust of the eyes and the lust of the flesh and the pride of life which are directly opposed to God, what do you think is going to happen? Remember a pastor I know in Alaska, he was telling me the story some years ago, he Moved up there decades ago. and When he moved up there, some trusted missionaries and pastors told him, all right, now look, winter's up here long. and You've got to have cable television. And you've got to have a steady supply of video games to keep the children busy. Otherwise, you'll lose your mind during the winter. Well, not wanting to despise the counsel of his elders, he took their counsel. And about halfway through that first winter... He became grieved in his spirit over the disastrous influence that he'd let in the door. And he did something that really only people in Montana and Alaska and a few other states would understand. He took that TV out to a stump in the backyard. And he took out his 44 Magnum revolver and put six nice big holes in the screen. Then he took out his garden hose, not content with that, and he sprayed it. It was the middle of winter and he turned it into a big block of ice. And then he put it on his front porch as a monument to his family. But sin wasn't allowed in their house anymore. Sometimes we have to take that kind of measure. Is the internet a help or a blessing? Does it pose any danger? Here's someone late at night. They're surfing the internet aimlessly. Nobody's watching. They have no accountability set up. There's no filtration on there. They willingly walk that pathway. Romans 6 isn't much help. Because they are trying to walk into a lion's den. And they know it. God's counsel separate from evil. Don't pretend like you want victory when you won't do your part to come out from among them and be separate. But with all the separation we can do, the emphasis of Romans 6 is those separational decisions don't themselves have the power. It's our crucifixion identification with Christ that possesses the power to deliver us. When our part of separation has been exhausted. But at any rate, oh, actually let me point out one more thing. 
The issue of yielding unto God must be in respect to His character and His sovereignty. Here's what I mean by that. Many times we view sin just simply as an act of disobedience, something flagrantly against who God is. Okay, that is sin. But you know, you can walk along in your life and not be committing anything like that outwardly that you coin as sin. But yet inwardly you're fighting against some providential circumstance God's given you and essentially you're telling Him that you know how to run His universe better than He does. That's just as wicked as robbing a bank. So yielding to God is in respect to His character and His sovereignty. But moving on, Romans 6 does end on a note of victory. It ends with the servants of sin having become servants of righteousness. It ends with the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now why not keep trumpeting that particular tune? Why plunge back into failure and misery once again? You may be surprised to know that many over the years have been disgruntled by Romans 7 for that very reason. Paul shouldn't be going back down the slope when he's ascended up to a mountain peak. J. Vernon McGee told a story. When he was young in his Christian life, there was a certain itinerant Bible teacher well known that I was really a help to him. But one of the things this brother taught was to skip Romans 7. He said, just get right into Romans 8, into the victory song, and, and into triumph. You don't need to hang out in the halls of depression and inward despondency on account of your flesh. And McGee testified after being a pastor for many years, he realized that was very bad counsel. He said he wanted to get as many as the Lord's people of the Lord's people as possible in the Romans 7. Because those who understand and grasp Romans 7 will end up in Romans 8. And many times that's the only way they're going to get there. See, Paul, writing under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, was an exemplary student of human nature. And to simply press on into the contents of Romans 8 from here wouldn't be honest, really, or helpful. Because there's still a significant part of our practical sanctification that has not been addressed. Here's what you find in Romans 7. The key word of Romans 7 is not sin, it's the word law. Which occurs 23 times in those 25 verses. You know, Romans 7 actually is presenting a deeper problem. A greater struggle than that of Romans 6. Romans 6, it was how not to do evil when I have a sin nature. Here's Romans 7. How to do good in spite of the shocking depravity of my sin nature. In Romans 6, the old nature seems strong and, and powerful to do evil. In Romans 7, the old nature is exceedingly weak and unable to do good, even after a person is converted to Christ. Many of the Lord's people that I've known, when they're sharing their deepest heart struggles, what they're doing is paraphrasing Romans 7, and they don't even realize it. Primarily what they're paraphrasing is the verse we'll get to later, verse 18, to will is, to present, with, is present with me. I want to do what's right. But the power to perform that which is good, I find not. Sound familiar to anybody? 
know, Alexander White, the well-known Scottish preacher who died in 1921. As he became more well-known, people wanted his opinion on new books, and they would send him new commentaries that came out in the book of Romans. And you know, he did an interesting thing. He would turn to Romans chapter 7 and the contents on that chapter. And based on the contents of what was said of Romans 7, he would judge the value of the entire work, whether it was going to be helpful or not. I find that interesting. I mean, I would think you could go to Romans 5. You could go to chapters 9 through 11 and maybe make similar deductions. But, but here's what White understood. This passage is so vital for the sincere people of the Lord to understand. And this passage is so often misunderstood. And that nobody is going to enter the Romans 8 experience without going through the gateway of Romans 7. He knew as a shepherd of the Lord's people how vital this section of Scripture really was. You know, you can picture in your mind your flesh is like a black hooded villain. It's sitting in your shadow and walking around with you everywhere you go. And in Romans 6, it's like this black hooded villain is along the roadside and seducing you to go up into some high place in the mountains and sin high-handedly against God. But you know what's even more frustrating? In Romans 7, the same black hooded villain is following you right to the very doors of the temple, even though you're bent on obeying Jehovah. You see, we find here the sin nature is present with you at the very doors of Christian sacrifice. He's there analyzing your prayer. He's there when you're reading the scriptures. He's there as you sit here in this church meeting and hear the preaching of the word of God. It's not just that you and I acknowledge that we have a fallen nature. Romans 7 brings us to the humbling realization that there is not one shred of resonant goodness in us, even as Christians. One of the axioms of warfare is know the enemy. And you could put that over Romans 7 and say, to know the enemy within. As one of the major steps in the path to walking in the Spirit. You see, one of the most deceitful characteristics about this inward nature of ours is that it can enjoy being religious. It can appear so sanctified, so spiritual. But it's always at enmity with God. And that will never, ever change. And so being deceived by their carnal nature, many, many Christians are turned aside into counterfeit spirituality. I firmly believe if you picture sanctification like a narrow road, on either side there's a deep ditch that the flesh is going to constantly try to shove you into. On one side of that pathway is to throw out all structure, to throw out all self-discipline, and to, to hit the word legalism back and forth like you're playing ping pong with it. These are the people that have blogs on the internet talking about recovering from fundamentalism. Now, many of them have been hurt. I'll grant that. But most of them have jumped from the frying pan into the fire. And a Christian who comes to that position 
emphasizes their freedom and their liberty. And they want to talk about being led of the Spirit. But as you watch their life, it's very, very evident they're against any commands of God, even in the New Testament, which are expressly given. It's evident watching their life, they're dominated by their desires and their thoughts and their opinions. They have a lax view of God. They have a lax view of the church. They have an overemphasis on their own desires and opinions and leisure. They have a careless view of sin. And there's a lack of militancy in the warfare mentality that is so clearly taught in the New Testament. All right, that's one ditch. This passage really doesn't even talk about that one. But what it does talk about is the one on the other side, which poses the great danger to sincere people who actually want to be holy as He is holy and are willing to give things up for that sake. You see, it's the tendency of the more careful Christians to adopt the habit of keeping a list of certain rules and regulations and to call that dedicated Christian living. In other words, keeping my list equals pleasing God. Listful, happy God. List empty, mad God. You know, that was a constant problem in the early church, especially from those that had come out of Judaism. It was so hard for them to shake that mentality of laws and ordinances and rules and regulations as a means of pleasing God all the time. That Paul had to deal with it. The churches in the region of Galatia, for instance. Classic example of this. Such an attempt, by the way, is guaranteed to fail. And by the way, as I, on my time, am working through church policy and church standards, believe me, I'm aware of the danger of that. You see, it's not that the standards and policy are bad. But this flesh of ours is in constant danger of equating that with spirituality. Who knows how many people are sitting in fundamental churches this morning. They knocked their doors this week. They prayed their list. Their skirt's the right length and so's their hair. They carry their King James Bible, you know. And they're as carnal as could be. Because they're looking at sanctification by list and not by the Spirit. It's always a danger. So in order to break us away from this mindset, Paul's going to illustrate our relationship to the law. You remember chapter 6. Through crucifixion with Christ, we've been rendered dead to sin. Chapter 7, through crucifixion with Christ, we've been rendered dead to, that other key word, the law. Here's how it begins. Verse 1, by showing that law has a limited dominion. Know ye not, brethren, for I speak to them that know the law, primarily to the Jews that were there, how that the law hath dominion over a man as long as he liveth. You know, a Jewish male circumcised the eighth day, who found himself living between Moses and Christ, he bore in his body the external mark of that tremendous covenant that God had made with the man Abraham centuries earlier. But he also by lineage was born underneath the covenant of Moses 
to obey the law. And what he found is the law had dominion, as it says here. The word means lordship. The law was lord of his life. The law reigned supreme at every level. The law dictated what he ate. The law dictated where he went. The law dictated who he associated with. What he brought for sacrifice and how to approach God and and so on. And all of this under a dark cloud of threats, a very stiff penalty for the slightest disobedience. But the law's dominion was indeed temporary. You see, one place the law couldn't go was to the grave. And from the human side of things, the worst the law could do with all of its threatenings was to inflict the death penalty. But once death came, whether by penalty or natural causes, that was all the law could do. The law had dominion over the person no more. Now we understand part of that's going to be God's judgment later on. But from the human side of things, he's emphasizing the jurisdiction of the law ended at the graveyard. In verse 2 and 3, he's going to give us an illustration of a woman and her marriage to two different husbands. Now, why does he switch from a man there under the law to now a woman? Well, it's because the picture is one of subjection. And the question is one of which husband should she rightfully be subject to? So the picture of a man there doesn't fit. Verse 2. For the woman which hath an husband is bound by the law to her husband so long as he liveth. But if the husband be dead, she is loose from the law of her husband. So whether her husband dies in war or of natural causes or tragically finds himself buried under a public pile of rocks because of his disobedience. However he died, when his spirit departed from his body, she was no longer under subjection to him. Verse 3, so then if while her husband liveth she be married to another man, she be called an adulteress. If her first husband was still living and she were to join herself to another, it would be scandalous. It would be known unrighteousness and an offense to the community and call down God's terrible penalty. But he points out again, if her marriage to another is after the decease of the first husband then it's perfectly legitimate. Now can you picture, here's a wife of some man's youth. She's married young like they were in those days. She's been married for decades. But you know, her first husband, really it's a turbulent marriage. He tends to be quite harsh and cruel. He doesn't seem to really care about her as a person. He's very adept at pointing out her flaws and failures. Sometimes he's been known to fly into a fit of rage. And really, though she won't verbalize it to anyone, she begins to view her marriage to him like a yoke of bondage around her neck. And in her inmost soul, she wants deliverance, although she knows the only righteous deliverance comes when somebody dies, and she's not about to ask that. Providence intervenes. She's no longer bound. Death has completely and righteously dissolved the legal connection. And now we see her. She's married to a new husband. 
You know, this one's uh, quite different than the old. This one's tender and compassionate. This one is interested in her, her, her person, her soul. He wants to build up her most holy faith. He puts her needs above his own. He lays down his life for her sake. And under his tender leadership, she blossoms like a rose underneath the summer sun. Now wouldn't it be strange if you could view her whenever she needed guidance. She snuck out of the house. She ran down to the graveyard. Stood over the headstone of her own husband, her old husband, and begged his counsel. He would say, now that's odd, you see, because her old husband was no help to her when he was alive. And he's certainly no help to her now that he's dead. But you know, that picture is no stranger than what many of the Lord's people do to their new husband, which is Christ. And that's the emphasis that he's making in these verses. Look at the application to the Christian, verses 4 through 6. Wherefore, my brethren, ye also are become dead to the law by the body of Christ, that ye should be married to another. Even to him who was raised from the dead, that we should bring forth fruit unto God. So, in the same way that the death of the husband freed the wife, you, if you're a Christian, have been freed from the law by the crucifixion of Christ. Now, What does that have to do with my audience of 21st century Gentiles this morning? I know most of you. I would be honestly surprised if anyone here would stand up and say, the Mosaic Law is my rule of life. I've been amazed when I run across those people. Given what the New Testament says concerning that very thing, I don't know why. Even the apostles are shocked. Why would you put a yoke of bondage on the neck of the apostles that we haven't been able, or a neck of the Gentiles that we haven't been able to bear. But we can make a broader application, and here's what it is. Dwelling within you is the tendency, because of your flesh, to gravitate towards a law principle as the means of sanctification. In other words, it's this ever-growing list of rules and obligations which in your subconscious equals making God happy. Now mind you, most of these are not strict scriptural commands. They're a conglomeration of things you've picked up from books you've read, people you've met, ideas you've heard, conferences you've attended. Books that are supposed to help that are sitting on your shelf. And if you're honest, this list gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And many times you perceive it's acting more like a noose tightening around your neck than it is giving you wings to fly and to walk in the Spirit. And you know why that is? Because when our sinful flesh is confronted with the need to be spiritual, the normal natural response for the flesh is to react by grabbing hold of some sort of law principle, which ends up acting a whole lot more like a bag of cement than it does a life raft, and tends to drag us downward. 
So we must understand, just as our sin nature was left in the tomb 2,000 years ago, when Christ walked out, so was the dominion of law or law principle over you. Now, what does it mean to be dead to the law? It means more than, well, we just don't like the law. Here's some things it does mean. It means to be rightfully freed from its punishments, its motivations, and its bondage. And yes, your own personal list you make can hold you in the same kind of bondage as the Mosaic Law. You see, the law, the emphasis is what I have to do to make God happy. I've got to do something for Him. In grace, the emphasis is what God has done on my behalf so that He is eternally satisfied with me. In law, the obedience is to form or to keep a relationship, to avoid punishment. Under grace, I obey because the relationship can never be severed. And because I want to honor my King who died for me. In the law, I'm on a quest to prove my love to God. Under grace, we love Him because He first loved us. You see, your relation to the law has been dissolved and you have been joined to a far superior husband. And for this purpose, given in that verse, that we should bring forth fruit unto God. God crucified the dominion of Adam and law over you and placed you in a union with Christ because that's the only way that a fallen sinner could ever manifest the holiness of life that is pleasing to God. And you can look at that in contrast to the end of chapter 5, talking about the days of our flesh. That the law and, the, and, 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 and sin within us came together and they essentially produced fruit unto death. That's the same, same thing spoken of at the end of chapter 6 and verse 23. But there's two interesting principles given here in verse 5 that I think bear mentioning, and they're important to understand. Okay, principle number one, the flesh, your fallen nature has no problem joining forces with law. In fact, your flesh actually delights in rules and regulations to a point, and here's why. Because that way it can appear spiritual in its own strength and gain glory for itself. It can cover a perverse heart and unconfessed sin with external performance. And because a list of rules put in the wrong place actually works directly against our reliance on the Spirit of God and hinders, hinders our sanctification and usefulness. Now here's another interesting note. The application of the law to your flesh actually makes you behave worse. This is something that's extended more in the next section. I'm going to kind of leave it there. But it's something that's taught in verses 7 through 14. Law combines with flesh produces you being worse in the long run. I had to appreciate a quote by this classic Matthew Henry quote in that passage. He was likening the work of the law upon our own fallen flesh. And he said, the law in your flesh is like the sun shining upon a dunghill. All it does is excite and draw out the filthy steam. It's a grotesque picture, but it's a very accurate one that we must understand. Verse 6 begins with the familiar words, But now, 
You know, this is the third time this phrase has appeared in this book, and each time marks the doorway between the way of light and the way of darkness. And so in contrast to the miserable fruit that we used to produce, we've been delivered from law or law principle. And of course the insinuation is the law was a terror and a harsh master. Now why have we been delivered? That we should serve in newness of spirit and not in the oldness of letter. In other words, that we would learn that we cannot please God by law or the strivings of the flesh, but only by the power of the Holy Spirit. And that the principles that govern a life lived by grace through faith are the exact opposite of the principles of being devoted to some sort of law. Now there's a lot more I wish I could say on that. You'll have to bear with me. You can mentally draw a line between that statement, serving in newness of spirit, not in the oldness of letter. You can draw it right down in your mind to chapter 8. Because that's where that topic is expounded on. But you see, between here and chapter 8, there's really a long and important digression from here on, which is aimed at bringing us to the same climax of Paul in verse 24, when he cries out, Oh, Wretched man that I am. You see, we go there because the Spirit of God's intent is to destroy every vestige of confidence in the flesh and to instruct us just how evil and deceptive our nature really is. How many of you understand it's a good thing? That you can't properly fight an enemy that you do not understand. Many Christians unknowingly walk along in life thinking their old nature is being sanctified, it's been cleansed, it's been changed. When what Romans 7 teaches, your sin nature today is just as evil as before you are converted, and it will continue to be that way. And denying that and misunderstanding that will never help you to do righteously the way God has prescribed but we'll have to wait for now to go further down that vein. But I do want to close this morning with an important question that some of you are probably grappling with. And this is a hard one to thread the needle on. What then is the purpose or the place, if any, of self-discipline, schedule, structure, and human attempt in the Christian life? Are we to just throw all of it out? I've run across many, I think, are bouncing between the two as though they're polar opposites. One week, they're in the week of structure. And they get a lot of things done, but they just feel like they weren't sensitive to the Lord. And and so the next week, they throw it all off and sort of have a week of spontaneity, but nothing gets accomplished. And they're going, how do I sort through this? How do I know if I'm dominated by law principle or by grace? I've said a lot of negative things about rules and regulations. I mean, should we just throw them out and float along? Well, you know many scriptural principles just like I do. And applying a healthy and right dose of real experience and proper understanding, you know that deliberate use of time is an important thing in the Christian life. We are told, redeem the time, the days are evil. 
Don't walk as fools, walk circumspectly. That means think about your footsteps. Watch where you're going. Time is the most precious commodity that you possess. Every day you have 24 $100 bills worth of time, and every hour you throw one of them away or you invest it for eternity. That's the fact that's not going to change. You know, it's interesting, looking at the life of Paul, one of the things I love about the way God orchestrated his life is he destroys, in his own example, several dichotomies that we tend to hold. If you read much theology, you may have run across this dichotomy between spiritual and scholarly. Should a man spend all of his time in study? Or should he spend all of his time in prayer? And there's two distinct camps that lob missiles back to the other. Well, Paul's life illustrates both. The answer is neither. They're both important. Many people want to set up a a competition between should a minister be supported by churches or should he be self-supporting? Once again, Paul set up an example in his own life of both, depending on the circumstances. But here's another one. Should a man be self-disciplined and deliberate with time, or should he be led of the Spirit? And the answer is not either or. The answer is both. Told, he spoke of himself saying, I keep under my body, I bring it into subjection. Study to show thyself approved unto God. Exercise, the Greek word is gymnazo, gymnasticize yourself. Put in sweat and toil to become godly. And many other things could be said. But here's what we have to understand. Two things. First of all, we've got to understand as we're instructed on what our flesh is like after we are saved. It's the constant tendency of our own nature... To turn God-honoring self-discipline and structure into the dominion of law. And thereby making a, a good thing a bad thing. Really, this entire chapter in Romans 7 is an expose of how pathetic and deceptive our flesh really is. And we've got to understand that. Just a few general guidelines on that thought. First of all, any good thing. A standard, a schedule, can be put in a wrong place that doesn't necessarily mean the thing itself is bad. There's many things in life that make tremendous servants bad masters. The money in your wallet is one example. Schedule, structure, and self-discipline is another. It's a good servant. It's a bad master. And here's what else we have to remember. God's goal for you and I And our daily walk of obedience is to magnify His grace and for us to learn continual reliance upon His Spirit. We must be led by the Spirit and the guidelines we set. Let me just give a few questions we can ask ourselves. First of all, whatever restrictions or whatever steps of self-discipline I've placed upon myself, are there clear scriptural principles that have led me to this position based upon honest communion with the Lord, or if they come about independently of that from some other source, which may not be God's direction for me. Another one. Have I taken time to ensure that this is the will of God for me? Have I really prayed through this to see if this is God's direction for me or somebody else? 
Something the Lord's people have got to understand. God is so individualized. And He rarely, if ever, leads two saints down the exact same pathway. Somebody else's path towards self-discipline is very likely not going to be yours. And this is one of the dangers with reading a lot of books. Books are great. But many people attend conferences and they, and they read biographies and they add rules to their life based on what somebody else did and what worked for them. But these things were not intended by God to be restrictive on them because they are in a different situation. They're in a different time, a different country, ministering to different people. They have different needs, a different family, a different wife, different numbers of children, different structure of schooling, different gifts, different calling, and so on and so forth. So the question is, are these things God has given me? Or am I hijacking somebody else's self-discipline and trying to force it on myself, which doesn't work? Here's another one. What's your response when God sovereignly interrupts your wonderful structure and self-discipline? How many of you have found you embark on some new schedule and day one interruptions just come out of the woodwork? And many times we walk around feeling guilty about that. And what we don't realize is God will very well do that same thing. Do you know why? Because you're putting your schedule on the throne. And God's trying to preserve you from a wrong kind of idolatry and slavish devotion to a principle of law rather than being led by the Spirit. Do you get irritable when God undeniably intervenes? Do you get frustrated and snap at people? Do you fight for your will? That's a sure sign. You're not walking with the Spirit who, believe me, reserves the right to dash your wonderful plans to pieces. What does your schedule and structure and self-discipline honestly do to continual prayer and sensitivity to the leading of the Holy Spirit? Do these rules and obligations I place on myself, do they walk hand in hand with a constant prayer life, a constant dependence and sensitivity to the Spirit of God? Or is it, oh, now I've got my schedule in place, no need to pray tomorrow until 4.30 p.m. when I run out of things to do. When success comes, do I give glory to my schedule and self-discipline? Or do I give the glory to Christ and His indwelling Spirit who can only give real success and He's the only one? But here's another side of that. We have got to respond according to the principles of grace and not law. And this is a big one. Let me try to explain what I mean. First of all, Not keeping the guidelines you've set for yourself cannot be treated on the same level as disobeying a clear command of Scripture. Many people have this glowing, growing list of rules. When am I going to get up? What am I going to do? What am I going to do this week? And the list just gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And when they fail at one of those, their response of guilt is almost the same as if they went out and cursed God's name. God has expressly stated this. He has not expressly stated that. Your rules and obligations may not necessarily be expressed commands of God. But here's another way to check. I mean, you ever think about the fact that God is pleased with your steps towards Him? God is pleased with your desire to have some kind of deliberate use of time? 
You think of a parent watching their child learning to walk for the first time. And I know what all of you do when your child stumbles and falls. You come over and scream at him and you kick him in the head, don't you? If you then, being evil, know how to treat your children with compassion, why in the world do we think God doesn't? Let me give an illustration that's probably overused, but one that will resonate with most. Let's say you determine you need more time in the scriptures. That's a good determination. Lots of scripture to back that up. Tomorrow morning, 6 a.m., it's blocked off. It's your meeting with God. No interruptions, no excuses. 5.58, you wake up, sun shining and birds singing. You lay there, you're going to think about things for a minute. 7.02, you wake up again. Baby's crying. Children are coming out of the woodwork. Somebody wet their bed. Life hits. Duties are upon us. The time is lost. If you're under devotion to law, here's how your thoughts go. God is displeased and furious and distant from me immediately because I broke His command. And see, now some sort of atonement has to be made. Something's got to be done about this, and that's probably going to be tomorrow morning when I succeed at getting up at the right time. So, until that happens, I guess I'm just under the cloud. You can't pray with any boldness because I didn't keep my standard. I just hope no spiritual disaster comes today because I won't be able to stand against it because look how I failed. Can't wait for tomorrow morning when I can hit the reset button and make God happy again. That's a noose. Here's how grace thinks. Grace realizes that that time is missed and God, rather than being furious, is grieved in his heart. Do you know why? Because he had a bounteous feast prepared for you to feed you because he loves you like you can't understand. Because He loves you as much as He ever will in eternity. Because He's chosen to place that love on you. And the reason He's grieved you missed that time is because He wanted to bless you. And because He values communion with you. But you see, grace understands if there has been sin, it can be confessed immediately. And immediately you can be on a clean slate of fellowship heart to heart with God. Grace understands, I can pray boldly right this very minute, even though there was failure earlier. Grace understands, I'm still in a position of God's favor. The storehouse of grace is still open to me. I was still crucified with Christ. I am still in a position of love relationship that can never be severed. I still own my mansion in the skies. I'm still the object of God's favor. And no matter what comes today, I can hold my spiritual head high and say, through Christ I will conquer. Grace also understands it can ask a loving father, hey, that meal I missed, can I have it a little later in the day? Can you give that to me? And the God delights to give it. But you see, grace gives the motivation properly to be at that banquet table tomorrow and to be successful because his thinking pattern is according to grace and not law. Law will strangle you. It will kill you. It will destroy your Christian life. It will lead you back into bondage. You have been delivered from it. But when we find ourselves in our structure we create, drawing us back into law thinking, 
fighting against the Spirit of God, neglecting constant prayer, that's a sure sign. You're not realizing your death to the law principle. And they need to deal with God afresh according to grace. Wherein you stand. Next Sunday, we're going to talk about the natural question. I'm sorry, not next Sunday. It's going to be several Sundays, matter of fact. Next Sunday's Mother's Day, and then I'm gone. So uh, next time we're in Romans, we're going to deal with the natural question that comes from this. Well, the law must be bad, right? So Paul's going to deal with that. But that also has the same thought in mind, illustrating the problems of our flesh. But again, that's a means to an end. Just like pointing out the depravity in Romans 1 through 3 was to bring us to justification. And God going in depth to show us how utterly wretched and pathetic we are is done by grace so that we can learn to please Him and bear fruit unto Him and learn to walk in the Spirit, not by the bondage of the law. Let's pray. Oh, Lord God, help us to understand. I feel like my words are so feeble to even explain this topic. Lord, what tongue is worthy to speak of grace? Would really articulate the complexities of the Christian life. Lord, I thank you. You move us beyond the alphabet of Christianity. And there's plenty in thy blessed word that deals with the complex and deep issues that we face. Father, I pray you would flush our wrong understanding right out into the open that we may deal with it. I pray, Lord, through these studies in Romans 7 that we would get a grasp, an unshakable understanding of what our nature really is and take you at your word and respond accordingly. Lord, if there's some here living under bondage of law, help them, Lord, as they sort out. You know the difficulty of it. We want to be disciplined. We want to be careful. But that so easily gravitates into bondage and a strangulation. Teach us, Lord, how to be disciplined. Teach us, Lord, how to put in effort, but all the while knowing it's Thy Spirit that must lead. We must be open to redirection. We possess no power in our own choices. Help us, Lord, to grow on this precious road of sanctification. In Jesus' name, amen.